and a warm welcome to anyone that's visiting here this morning. Trust that you've received lots of handshakes and, have, and actually do experience and will continue to experience a very warm welcome here from this fellowship. Uh, please hang around afterwards if you can for a cup of tea and coffee. Join us for uh, some fellowship afterwards as well. That'd be great. And uh, just also before we do the Bible reading, I just wanted to bring a big thank you from Lloyd Nicholas. Been in touch with Lloyd during the week. I went to visit him during last week, I think it was. Rang him this week. Rang him Friday. So I don't know whether he's out of hospital or not. He's not. Um, he was hoping to be. Um, so uh, um, just a quick update. The cause of the fever that he's had is unknown. Um, but apparently it has gone. Kidney function not doing too well. Had a biopsy on Thursday, hoping to get the results on Friday. Don't know what the result of that biopsy is. Um, so look, just continue to pray for, for Lloyd, but he does want to say thank you on behalf of his family for the support and the prayers from SDBC. Very much values and appreciates that, as I'm sure that all the folk in our church, all the folk, those of you who are not well, uh, trust that you do feel very supported and prayed for by this fellowship. All right, we're going to uh, look at chapter 15 this morning. Huge chapter, so if you've got your Bibles there or whatever apparatus that you have with God's Word on it, uh, I'm going to read uh, from verse 35. From 1 Corinthians chapter 15. From verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendour of the heavenly body is one kind and the splendour of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendour, the moon another and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendour. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown imperishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The first man, Adam, became being, the last Adam, a life-giving The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 
For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Aren't they fantastic words? What a beautiful passage of God's word. It's so full and rich. And I feel like I'm going to shortchange you this morning because we've got 35 to 60 minutes to get through. Mm. We need to pray. Let's do that right now. <laughs> Loving Father, your word is so precious to us. It's quick and it's active. It's living. It's powerful. It's, it's your word. It's truth. It's the bread of life. It feeds us. Your word tells us that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Father, please help us to have ears to hear, hearts to receive every word that comes out of your mouth this morning. Then we will grow, then we'll be fed, and you'll nourish us, and you'll continue to do that transforming work in all of our hearts as we give over and surrender to you. Bless this time, Lord. It's a sacred time as we have together every Sunday. Lord, we're standing on holy ground. You're here. So please help us to listen and give respect to these moments that you have with us, we pray, together as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we draw near um, towards the end of this series in 1 Corinthians, um, and we want to look into chapter 15 this morning, uh, chapter 16 next week, then it's gone. Um, but I wanted to begin uh, with just two brief questions of revision. Okay, you ready for this? I don't know about you, when I was a kid I hated revisional questions. You never knew where they were going to come from. But these are very easy ones, so here we go. The first one is this, our mission statement that we've been working through this year. Okay, the whole mission statement. You look in the bulletin, it's all there. But a mission statement is too. Can you say it with me? To work with God in transforming people into passionate followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Correct. Excellent. Last year, our focus was on what part of that? Yep, working with God. Thank you, the first part. Working with God. Second part is, of course, transforming people. Next year... We're going to be looking at the third part of our mission statement being, what does it mean to be a passionate follower of Christ? So that's the third part of our, our mission statement. But this year, right now, we're looking at our focus is on transforming people. Um, so we're going to see what God says to us about that in this incredible chapter this morning. So as I said before, as best we can in this time frame that we have, um, may the Lord lead us 
as we look at this amazing chapter of God's word. Most Bible commentators that I've read anyway agree that this particular chapter gives the fullest, the fullest explanation in the Bible of the resurrection body, of the whole concept of resurrection. What does that mean for us, etc.? Um, it, it gives us the fullest account. And therefore, if you think about that, it gives us incredibly the, the, the living hope that all believers in Christ have. You have that hope this morning that one day your body is going to change. You're going to be different. And also in view of this, this year's focus on transforming people, when you think about it, when you think about it, don't you think that the ultimate transformation that we in Christ will experience on that day when our bodies are resurrected as Christ's was and as his is today, don't you think that is the ultimate in transformation? Yeah? You agree? Anyone got anything better than that being resurrected as a better form of transformation? What an incredible, awesome transformation awaits us in Christ on that day. And, and Well, that's what you really call transformation. And I trust again for everyone that's here this morning that that is your hope. You're sitting here this morning with a big grin on your face because you're saying, yes, yes, Lord, that day's coming. And I thank you for the cross and I thank you for your burial and I thank you for your resurrection because it guarantees my own. Thank you, Jesus, for that day. But if you're here this morning and you don't have that, and you're kind of thinking, I don't know about that, mate. Well, you better talk to us afterwards. Because nobody ought to leave this building this morning without you having that absolute assurance that come that day, you too will be radically transformed in that you will experience that resurrection in your bodies. We talk about that more later on this morning. I want us to see that chapter 15 can be divided into three parts with these following headings. Verses 1 to 11. Verses 1 to 11 is the fact of Christ's resurrection. Verses 12 to 34 is the fact of the believer's resurrection. Verses 35 to 58 is the fact of the resurrection body. They're the three parts that we're going to look at. And under God's leading, have, you know, give justification to, the, to this chapter this morning. So, right, the fact of Christ's resurrection, verses 1 to 11. Not only is Christ's resurrection a historical fact, but it is, in fact, the core of the gospel. It's the core of the gospel. It's the central core of the gospel. And so Paul begins by saying to these Corinthian believers in verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. I want you to notice something here. That when Paul says, I want to remind you, that verb remind is a stronger meaning than what we might say. Oh, just need to be reminded of something. Paul's saying it with a little bit more... Gusto. He's saying it almost with a little bit of a rebuke. So he's not just reminding of something that may have slipped their minds, but it's a general rebuke. So in, in essence, he's saying, I would have you know, 
I would have you know that the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So he's speaking fairly authoritatively and in a kind of rebuking kind of way here. Because the fact is that they had received the gospel. The fact is that they had believed. The fact is that they had taken their stand on the gospel that Paul had preached to them. And as we've been going through this book of 1 Corinthians, we know and we've seen that there is a church that's spiritually immature. We know that there was immorality in this church. We know that they were worldly. We know that they were boastful. We know that they were proud. We know that they were childish in the way they handled spiritual gifts. We know that. But they were nonetheless believers in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Get your head around the grace of this God of ours who puts up with so much of our rubbish as believers. And the church isn't much different today, dear people. And yet here they are. They are believers. It's just amazing. They are the church of God in Corinth that Paul first addresses them in that term. Look at chapter 1 and verse 2 just to be reminded of that. So Paul continues to press this point by saying them, by reminding them. In other words, he's saying, I would have you know, verse 2, that by this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul continues to expound the truth of the gospel to remind them, right down to verses 11, in which the resurrection of Christ is so essentially connected with it. And I want you to notice a couple of things in these verses here. In verse 3, Paul says, What I received I passed on to you, and I want to emphasise, as of first importance. As of first importance. Dear brothers and sisters this morning, be reminded that the gospel of Christ is of first importance. It is the most important important message that you will ever receive hear and obey it's the most important message that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been entrusted with to proclaim to the world it is of first importance there's a lot of other important things too that the church needs to be aware of we do need to be aware of the poor the disenfranchised. We do need to be aware of social issues. We do need to be aware of these kinds of things. They are important. But the gospel is of first importance. God forbid that we as a church ever become like some have, in that they have been distracted and sidetracked, if you want, sidetracked, from proclaiming the gospel message. Because you see, it's the gospel that really does have the power to transform a human life. 
Everything else, you can put a band-aid on and fix it up. But when you want to get to the heart of the issue in a person's life, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that does that. Have a look at Romans, 12, Romans 1, 16 to be reminded of that. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God under salvation for those that believe. It's of first importance. Could I be so bold this morning and ask you, what's of first importance in your life? Sometimes a bit of a hint on that is what's occupying your mind most of the time? What's of first importance to you? You see, because for Paul, it was the gospel and it was what he was appointed by God to preach to the Gentiles, to the church, and for the church to pick up and proclaim it. What's of first importance to you today? Secondly, I want you to notice that Paul also uses the words according to the scriptures. He says that a couple of times. Look at this in verse 3. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see, the testimony of the scriptures, which, get this, which never fails. The scriptures could never fail. Isn't it awesome to be able to say that? Because we say things, we say, we, you know, we, we do things, we give our prom promises as well, and they do fail. But God's scriptures, the scriptures never fail because it is God's word. And I want you to notice how Paul's arranged this here in that he has placed according to the scriptures, above all the other eyewitness accounts of Christ's resurrection that we have in the scriptures. And Paul mentions those right down to verse 8 here. But as if he's emphasising first that it's according to the scriptures. And then, yes, there are others that saw him and they saw him and they saw him and they saw him. But it was all that happened according to the scriptures. And the Lord Jesus, look how he, how he puts this emphasis on the scriptures himself. Just for example, in Luke 22, 37, Jesus quotes Isaiah 52, verse 12. Look at what he says. Verse 37 of Luke 22, he says, It is written. There it is, there's the scripture. Jesus quotes it. It is written. He was numbered with the transgressors, straight out of Isaiah. That's what Jesus said. Then he says this about himself. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. And then what he says, yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And it will. <laughs> Nothing will get in the way of God's plan. But I wonder this morning again if, you know, maybe you're here and you kind of doubt what the scriptures say. Then you ask God to open your eyes and speak to your heart about it. Talk to someone. Because I would be very surprised if there isn't someone here today. And you kind of might even be a bit secret. You might even sort of think, I don't want too many people to know, but I doubt some of this stuff. Be honest about it. But my prayer is, and I'm sure the prayer of many others, may your doubts be replaced by certainty this morning as you hear the Lord Jesus say to your own heart today, 
yes. Hear his voice saying to you, yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And I want, then I want you to look at verses 12 to 34. So it's here that Paul teaches the fact of the believer's resurrection. The fact of the believer's resurrection. You see, the thing is that the, for the Corinthians, they, they had no problem in accepting Christ's resurrection. They believed it. Paul talked to them about that. They believed that. So they had no problem in accepting Christ's resurrection, but some obviously did in their belief about their own bodily resurrection. And Paul mentions that. Look at verse 12. But if Christ, sorry, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there were people who were doubting that the dead could be resurrected. You see, some of these Corinthians were still entangled in this typical Greek way of thinking about life and death, which simply for them is that dead men do not rise again. That's really where the Greek thinking was, to put it simple. Dead men do not rise again. And so there are some who, who could not accept the idea of a bodily resurrection after someone had died. See, faith in Christ was okay. Um, it was fine here and now. And, and even to have the assurance of some kind of celestial form after death. But for some of these Greeks, Corinthian believers... A bodily resurrection for each believer was beyond the Greek way of thinking. And some of them were still entangled and caught up in that culture and in that thinking. And I wonder if some of us get caught up in kind of worldly thinking as well. I wonder if some of us get caught up with it where it becomes a bit of a snare. And we get entangled in worldly thinking or other philosophies or other religious thinking. And it kind of keeps us from being able to grasp hold of what the scriptures teach us. You see, the problem for Paul was that this unbelief by some was having an impact on the whole church. It was causing, it was, it was corrupting many others in the church and, and leading them astray. And that's where Paul's concern was. Look what he says, right down to verse 33 and 34. He says, do not be misled, because some of them were. Do not be misled. Then he quotes, bad company corrupts good character. It's interesting that he quotes this. He's quoted it from a Greek poem. And the, and the Corinthians would have known that poem very well from a Greek poet. But how true is it? Isn't that true? That bad company corrupts good character? And once again, I don't know about you, but I get this, I sense this challenge here. In the light of this scripture that we've just read, you know, can I ask you, what company are you keeping? Is it the sort of company that builds you up and I'm not talking about being in the presence of non-Christian friends and people that you want to influence for Christ, but is it their influence on you or is it yours on them? You know, kind of where is that? What company do you keep? 
What's it doing for your faith and is it growing you and maturing you or is it pushing you down? Is it pushing you away from the things of God? They're the questions to ask. I think the scripture brings this out. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says next in this scripture. And perhaps you might need to do what he says here. What God says through the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 34. Pretty direct. Come back to your senses as you ought. And stop sinning. For there are some amongst you who are ignorant of God. And I say this to your shame. In other words, he's saying you ought to know better. You know the gospel. You've received it. You've believed it. You've taken your stand. You ought to know better. So based on this gospel of Christ's death, of his burial and his resurrection, which Paul had preached to them some years earlier, and of which they had received and took a stand on, he continues to reason with them. And the reasoning is so rich for us all this morning as we look at these words, look into these words. Verses 13 down to 19, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we're found then to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not, but if, but if he did not raise him from, raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. Sorry, I messed that up. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I like what commentator L. Richards says about this. He says, Jesus' resurrection and our own are so intimately intertwined that to doubt either constitutes a denial of the gospel message itself. It's true, isn't it? Christ's resurrection and our own so intimately entwined. To doubt either, you might need to doubt whether or not you've been saved. And this was the danger. This was the danger for some of these Corinthian believers. And it was impacting the lives of others. And of course Paul would have been concerned. And he paints a pretty hopeless picture for believers in Christ. Um, this hopeless picture for believers in Christ if they have not been raised from the dead. For it clearly means neither shall we be raised if Christ has not been raised. Then we won't either. And for those who have already died in their faith, well, as he says, they're eternally lost. If this life is all there is, and if this life is all there is, then we are very much to be pitied amongst all people in the world. For we have 
under Christ, sacrificed ourselves from the things of the world. We have denied these worldly pleasures. We, we have endured persecution. And what? All for the sake of an empty promise then? However, look at verse 20. In verse 20, Paul introduces an emphatic but. An emphatic but. Look at this, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What an amazing scripture. Simply yet profoundly, Christ's resurrection guarantees our own. It's as simple as that. Christ's bodily resurrection guarantees our own bodily resurrection. And again, another commentator says this, our resurrection involves a transformation. I love how he uses that word. Our resurrection involves a transformation from mortality to immortality, from sinner to sinless, from Adam-likeness to Christ-likeness. And that's what Paul talks about as he continues. Look at verse 22 to 24. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. And folks, that's the question, and I'll probably keep hammering it. Do you belong to Jesus today? We know that when a person dies, that person's spirit goes to be with Jesus. But he will come again and resurrect your body. Do you have that expectation for yourself this morning? He goes on verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power of the evil one. And in these verses, right down to verse 28, Paul teaches the order of these resurrection events. And we see and we know that Christ was first. He was the first raised. He was the first fruits. He is the pioneer, if you like. He is the guarantor of our own resurrection. When he comes, when he comes again, the dead in Christ will be raised, as he says in verse 23. And as we also know, Paul spends a fair bit of time when he writes to the Thessalonians in the first letter, verses 4 and 13 to 18. There's another account of the dead being raised in Christ. Christ will then finally, after that, Christ will finally put all things under his feet, including death. And then Christ, after that, will then hand over or deliver the kingdom over to his Father so that God may be the all in all, verse 28. This is the climax, if you like. The climax, the complete and total climax of the whole of salvation plan for mankind. It hasn't reached it yet. The absolute plan of everything that Jesus was appointed to do will finish on the day that your body is physically resurrected. Then death has completely and totally been swallowed up, defeated. Do you understand that? 
it's probably a little bit tricky, but I want to read what, uh, what Carl F. Henry says <clears throat> because he clarifies a couple of points that are in these verses. And I know there's a lot in here. He said, but he says this, it's really interesting and it's good. He says, all this together with the subjection of the Son himself to the Father is to be understood of Christ in his office as mediator, right? For his work of salvation will then have been completed and the sovereign purposes of God established for all eternity. The everlasting, this is important to get this bit, the everlasting unity in essence and in dignity of the first and second persons of the Godhead is not in question in this passage. So if you're starting to think, does that mean that Jesus kind of disappears somehow and it's kind of all swallowed up and what happens to him? No, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he is God and remains from until all eternity. Does that make sense? But it's what Jesus accomplished. It's the whole of the salvation plan. It was his office as mediator that will all come to an end when he hands a whole lot over to the Father. And you're resurrected. It's all done, completed. Does that make sense? And actually verse 29. Verse 29 also raises some interesting questions here. Perhaps you've wondered about that. Look at verse 29. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do? What will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? I just want to tell you, we don't baptise people for the dead in this church. Is that okay? But what's Paul meaning by this? What we need to understand in this is that Paul in no way is endorsing or condoning this particular practice of being baptised for the dead. And in fact, the commentators say it's an obscure passage. They don't even know where it came from. Not even sure what was going on here. There's a few ideas and thoughts, but basically being baptised for the dead, it's a bit obscure. But the point is this. The point that we need to go away with is this. Is that Paul emphatically states... That if this practice is going on, and it was going on obviously, then how inconsistent for anyone to undergo baptism as a substitute for someone else who is dead, if in fact they believe that the dead will not even be raised. Do you, do you get that? Why are they doing this? Why are you being baptised for the dead if you're saying that the dead won't rise? Why are you doing it then? It's inconsistent. Well, so far we've considered this, the fact of Christ's resurrection. I know we've whizzed through it. The fact of the believer's resurrection. And finally, and time runs on, from verses 35 to 58, is the fact of the resurrection body. It's a fact, brothers and sisters. And as I said, even though our time's gotten away this morning, I want to assure you, my dear brother and sister here this morning, that you will have all the time of a timeless eternity to enjoy your new resurrection body when that day comes for you. We are so time bound. Can you think of what it's going to be like in eternity where time doesn't really exist? And as I said earlier, we'll get to enjoy the ultimate 
the ultimate in a transformed life forever on that day. The resurrection body, as far as we can see from the scripture, is the same as the body we have now. However, in startling contrast to the body we have now, it will be imperishable. It will be glorious. It will be powerful. It will be spiritual. It will no longer be subject to old age. It will no longer be subject to aches and pains or illness or disease. All that has gone. Just as it did for Christ. Just as his body was, so will ours be on that day when he comes and he calls you from the grave. Your body to meet with your spirit to be perfect in the way that God initiated and first planned in the beginning. One commentator described it in this way. I love this, how he describes it. Your body will be everlastingly stamped with the image of of our heavenly saviour isn't that awesome what a glorious unspeakable hope awaits for us in Christ on that day it is of first importance and so I'll say to you again is this your hope today that you're going to be with Jesus that you're going to have a body like his on that day how he does it we don't know Yep, he'll even be able to raise up those who have been cremated. He'll be able to raise up those who have been in horrific situations whose bodies have basically been, I don't know what you'd call it, almost vaporised by explosions and things like that. He'll be able to bring all that together. He'll have no problem in calling that person from the grave. And if you're in Christ, he'll call you by name and your body will be like his, instantly changed. That's the hope. That's the message of the gospel. This is of first importance. Look at these verses as we, as we just move through quickly now. Verse 34, 54. When the perishable has been clothed. When? 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 Not if. When? The perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? And Paul in those passages quotes from Isaiah 58, correction, Isaiah 25 verse 8 and Hosea 13 verse 14. And because of this glorious hope and, and, and these powerful words that come from God, and because they are of first importance, because they come from the mouth of God, then Paul concludes with, the more, with more inspirational encouragement to these Corinthian believers and therefore to you and me today. And that is verse 58, one of my favourites. I'm sure you know it off by heart too. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. In the light of all that Paul's been teaching about the resurrection, the absolute gospel truth, which is of first importance, he says, therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labour in the Lord, whatever that is, whatever it is, is not in vain. And part 
of our future resurrection hope is that nothing we do in our labouring, in our suffering, in our serving for Christ is ever in vain. So stand firm because Jesus is coming soon. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Forgive us sometimes for glossing over things. Burden our hearts to read and delve into even richer, deeper. Lord, you might be even putting your hand on people to say you need to go to college and learn more about my word in an in-depth way. But thank you for your scripture. Thank you for these things which we've looked at this morning which are of first importance. And I just pray for any dear one here today who doesn't know you personally. Father, I pray you lay your hand on them because they're not here by accident this morning. You appointed it, you arranged it. I just believe that. I pray that they'll go with the utter assurance that when they die, they're going to be with Christ and their body will be finally resurrected to have a body like yours. May we all have that assurance today. And Father, for those of us who do, Lord, what an incredible hope, what an amazing hope. Help us, please. Help us not to keep this to ourselves. We've got to tell someone else, Lord. Show us who that should be this week. Might be someone completely unexpected, but Lord, just show us and give us the joy, the boldness, the words to share this hope that's in us with someone in this world who doesn't have any hope like this. We ask these things for your glory, Lord, thanking you for your presence with us in Jesus' name. Amen.